and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Andrew Selbst, a postdoctoral scholar at uh, Data and Society Research Institute and visiting fellow at the Yale Information Society Project. We will discuss his new paper, The Intuitive Appeal of Explainable Machines. The paper was co-authored with Solon Barocas, Assistant Professor of Information Science at Cornell Law, and will appear in the Fordham Law Review. So uh, welcome, Andrew. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> of course. It's so great to have you on this program. Um, I really enjoyed reading your paper, which is, I think, incredibly timely and important, but also really, really dense and complicated. So I'm looking forward to seeing what we can do to kind of break it down for listeners so so that they can understand it. Um, and I think maybe you could start by uh, explaining what I think is a kind of the, the key um, the the key social phenomenon or the key new uh, kind of element in information science uh, that's created this conversation that your paper is engaging in, which is the concept of, of algorithm, algorithmic decision-making. Um, so what is algorithm, algorithmic decision-making and, and, and what kind of problems does it present? All right. Yeah, thanks. Um, so algorithmic decision-making is a new method of essentially making decisions that involves putting, uh, running decisions through computers, uh, crunching a whole bunch of data to find patterns to, to predict who will be a better employee, who will pose less like less likelihood of recidivism um, in a criminal justice context, a better credit risk, things like that. The way it works is that you have um, a lot of data about past successful or unsuccessful candidates, say in a hiring context, um, and you you know you have data about them, so where they're from, you know maybe their age, maybe their credit history, and then you know whether they're a good or bad employee by some metric of good and bad, and you use that to train your algorithm, what's called a model, um, and then you use the model for new cases where you have a new employee with a, or employee candidate with a bunch of data and the model predicts, is this more like the good people or more like the bad people? Um, there are a lot of problems with it. And the, the, I mean, it could potentially also do a lot of good. So it can do a lot of good from, from an efficiency standpoint, from discovering patterns that humans can't necessarily uh, discover on our own. Uh, it can also, if done right, you know, um, sort of get around a lot of human implicit biases, which is the selling point of a lot of this stuff. Mm. But if not done carefully, it can also create all sorts of new biases. Um, I think a lot of the time it was sold, big data was sold as neutral. And now the discussion has moved on over the last several years. People have realized, okay, data is not neutral. Data replicates the biases that it's trained on. A lot of the past data is biased. Um, but the other thing is, once we recognize there are these biases, we have a, an extra complication in that with machine learning, you're crunching a whole bunch of data, the computer comes up with the rules, and it's not always the case that humans can even understand what those rules are. So we might call them, um, we might call these internal models kind of inscrutable. So 
but just by the sheer complexity of them, the amount of code, they find patterns in ways that we don't recognize as patterns, and so we don't know how it makes decisions. And it makes it very, very hard to hold these decision makers accountable to understand what accountability even looks like in a case where decisions are made in essentially in a way that has been described as alien intelligence. Right. Right. So in relation to that, I mean, one thing that that struck me in your paper was that you talked a little bit about how algorithmic decision making is both different from, but also in some ways similar to previous forms of decision making. Sort of like it has, it works in some ways that are similar, some ways that are different, has some problems that are similar and some problems that are different. And that that kind of framework should inform how we think about sort of regulating and shaping algorithmic decision making going forward. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit of how, how it's similar and different at the same time. Sure. Um, so, you know, philosophers of knowledge for several hundred years have been trying to figure out what it means um, to have a causal inference or, or um, how we create knowledge as, as humans. And the similarities are that in some ways we as humans uh, see a lot of information from when we were children and collect it and find patterns and reason about those patterns. To put it more concretely, as I've described elsewhere in, say, a policing context, right? Mm -hmm. You might think that police are making an individual, individualized observation about someone um, when they observe that they're, you know, huddled with a package at night on a particular street that you know to be a drug corner, um, and that you're making an individualized determination that they're likely involved in a drug transaction. But what you're actually doing, or what the police officer is actually doing, is understanding that those discrete facts in the past have added up to um, a drug transaction. So it's similar in that way to a machine learning model in that you take a whole bunch of facts and the correlation says, well, this is more likely than anything else a, a drug transaction. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, at a very high level, humans and machines do a lot of the same kind of correlative reasoning based on ha- past um, ideas. But machines are much, much better at going deep. That is, um, they can analyze a lot more data and can find much deeper patterns and with less sort of cognitive biases, like recency bias, like confirmation bias. But they're myopic. Machines are idiots. Like, they, they only know exactly what you told them. And so what humans are different is that we're very, very broad, right? So if there's some other thing going on on this corner, like you're outside of a, of a stadium and someone is looking for a taxi, right? They're, and that's not taken, that might not be taken to a model, um, or that might not be a great example. But there are all sorts of other kinds of information that might come in that might not be taken into a model. So humans are much better at understanding things in a broad way, which we usually refer to as common sense. Mm-hmm. And machines are much better at understanding patterns that sort of go deep. I see. I don't know so, if that's... Yeah, so it's like, if I understand it correctly, it's like humans can process a whole bunch of information and like draw inferences from that information, whereas machines can process a whole lot of information, but do it in a sort of mechanical way that might find patterns that 
might be counterintuitive or that people might not recognize? Right. So, I mean, the reason that we think of them as counterintuitive is because we only can reference the human side, right? If, if we were a couple of robots having this conversation, we'd find the human patterns unintuitive. It's just the way, the way the machines are processed. So the example we have in our paper is that um, it, one, of, one of the examples is this famous uh, computer science result where you had a machine that was trying to distinguish between wolves and huskies. Mm. And the way it was done, it was showed a whole bunch of labeled pictures, like full images, where, you know, they were either labeled as wolf or labeled as husky. And the machine goes and just looks at a bunch of the pixels, right? It figures out all the pixels, um, and then it maybe detects edges, and it detects, like, color patterns. It has no idea what a wolf or husky is in some, you know, conceptual sense like we do. Mm. Mm-hmm. What ended up happening is it returned, um, it returned a bunch of pictures and got some of them wrong. But when you tried to ask what the difference was, when, like they did this, this paper is actually um, a paper that was, uh, it, it, it was one of the interpretability research papers where they tried to get the machine to explain why it made a decision. Mm. Um, what the machine highlighted was the snow in the background. <laughs> right? and, which is a weird result. Yeah. Um, and, but we know it's a weird result because we have concepts of wolf we have concepts of husky, and though you may not actually be able to tell them apart by looking at them as a human, because I'm not sure I could, mm-hmm. um, we know that snow is a different concept that is not a part of either one. <laughs> right. Right. And so, and, and the computer, all it learned was, oh, these images labeled wolf had snow, and these images labeled husky did not have, well, actually, it didn't learn that, sorry. These la- images labeled wolf had a big p- p- patch of white. Mm. These these images labeled Husky did not. And so it does, it just looks straight at the image with no concepts. So it's like a, it's just a very different way of quote unquote thinking. And that's why we don't recognize it. Right. Right. So I guess what it's telling us then is photographs of wolves are correlated with, with snow and photographs of Huskies are not necessarily correlated with snow, but that wasn't really what we wanted to know in the first place. Right. And to be clear, um, it's a subtle point, but it's not actually telling us that even. Mm. Right? It's telling us in this training set, the images labeled wolf had white, had this thing that we identify as snow in the background. Okay. Right? The computer has no concept of snow. The computer has no concept of wolf or husky. It has concepts of the label wolf and husky fair yes keep the terminology straight at all times exactly well well, i mean it's just it's (laughs) an important concept because if we start thinking of the machines as thinking in the same way i think it'll obscure obscure the the points we're trying to make in the article which is that we actually don't have a great way to oversee the machines because they're not thinking yeah no i think that's really important like i mean it's so easy for me to slip into attributing uh sort of human consciousness to what the machine is doing. And that's just not the correct way of thinking about it. Right. Um, Okay. So you used also two particular concepts or two particular words in the way you talked about the kinds of problems presented by algorithmic decision-making. And I was wondering if you could explain what they mean in this context and also maybe highlight the differences between them. And that was uh, inscrutability and non-intuitiveness. And I think you've talked a little bit about them already, but maybe like kind of specifically bring out what they are. 
time. Right. Thanks. So I want to, I'm just going to sort of start out by laying the background uh, that also will explain why we actually wanted to write the paper in the first place. Great. So going from when we talked a minute ago about the initial problems, I think a lot of people saw that algorithms were inscrutable, that people couldn't really understand how to make heads or tails of them, they're an alien intelligence, and their immediate reaction was, therefore they're unaccountable, and what do we do about this? Right? And so what ended up being proposed but in, in all, all corners for, I mean, there, there are a lot of papers talking about this, um, was explanation. Was They said, okay, we need to invent, we need to create algorithms that explain themselves, and we need to make, regulate to make sure algorithms can explain themselves. And a lot of this was discussions of opening the black box. Um, so, you know, Frank Pasquale had that book, um, The Black Box Society, which uh, decried a lot of the secrecy of algorithms, but also the lack of explanation. Mm. Uh, there were, there were a, a few scholars, including myself, that talked about the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe, and the right to explanation that it creates, whether or not it creates it as a matter of positive law debate. But there was a large group of people thinking about explanation. And what Solon and I were saying was, that's not quite getting at it, mm. right? So the difference between inscrutability, we wanted to point to the difference between inscrutability and what we're calling non-intuitiveness, which is inscrutability means that you have a model and you don't understand what the rules are. Non-intuitiveness is that you have a model and you have no way of making sense of what the rules are. Uh-huh. So an example Right? Imagine in the criminal justice context or in the policing context, there, there was some machine learning model that came up with, it with um, a prediction that if you wear a particular kind of red sneaker, you're probably committing crimes. Mm. Right? That is a model that is not inscrutable. We know that it has this very strong correlation. We know exactly what the rule is. You can compute the rule by hand. Right? You, you just know it relies on this one fact. Mm-hmm. But it's a model where we say, what the heck is going on? Right? Like, why does it have this rule? Right. And that's the thing, right? It's a non-intuitive rule. So we, we want to know why. And to the extent that law is really interested in sort of holding algorithms accountable, what we think it's interested in is less explanation and more justification, mm. which is to say, you want to know, you want to be sure that the people creating these algorithms are justified in setting up the rule systems the way they do. Explanation is also an important part of that because it's really hard to ask if they're justified if you don't know what the rules are. But we just think you need more as a general rule. So, for example, this this red shoe hypothetical, a red sneaker, it could be that the machine had picked up on some recent data that this gang, when they were going out and you know committing violent acts, wear these red sneakers as like a part of their membership. But mm-hmm. right? that would be something where, okay, these red sneakers like a really good um, identifier for they're likely committing a crime right now and that it would be justifiable. But it could also be that in a particular segment of society or a particular segment of, you know, population of LA, these sneakers have become really popular and that population happens to live a certain area, have be a certain race, and therefore you're actually just correlating the sneakers with race. Right. And so the... We, the, the important point is, right, often machine learning will find these rules and we won't actually have an intuitive sense of whether they're valid or not. Mm-hmm. And so we need more. And ultimately, and sorry if I'm going on too long no, before no, no. you get to ask another question, yeah. um, ultimately what we're suggesting is that 
um, computer scientists are oriented to suggest that if we if we have unintuitive, like we need explanations so that um, rules that are clearly bad, um, like this snow example, right, mm-hmm. will will show themselves to be bad. And so we're like that. That's not a reasonable way to make that decision and go back to the drawing board. But anything unintuitive, we should just accept unless there's a reason for it, unless there's an obvious thing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Lawyers take a very opposite approach, saying they should. Um, if there's something unintuitive, it should be assumed to be bad, to be discriminating or something like that, unless you can give us a, a reason to believe it's good, right? So they both computer scientists and lawyers in this case want to rely on default rules mm-hmm. because we don't, we use our intuition to do evaluation. That's, that's how we always do evaluation and it's why non-intuitive rules are really hard to deal with, hard to justify. But what do you do in that huge space of rules where machine learn or that huge space of models where machine learning finds non-intuitive rules that are potentially legitimate but are also strange? Mm-hmm. Lawyers say make the, call them illegitimate. Computer scientists say call them legitimate. What we're trying to say is we need another approach to narrow the space of rules you don't know what to do with. Right, right. And that approach is documentation. Right, Sorry, right. No, no, that, absolutely. And um, and it and it struck me one thing that was really interesting about sort of the reason you reached that result was that you pointed out how important, how ultimately what's going on here is that we're trying to reach, you know, the good normative outcomes. I mean, this is a, a policy decision, right? Yes, exactly. Um, I would say our claim is assuming that the goal of law is to reach some normative outcome. We try to be, I mean, we certainly have normative preferences. Mm-hmm. We have beliefs. Um, uh, but like we, tr- we try to be sort of ambivalent about what the actual goals are. Um, I mean, even if, I, I, maybe I shouldn't say we were ambivalent. Um, the idea of our paper can work for any normative framework that law is trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. The important point is we need a way to get from the particular normative framework that law is trying to achieve to actually applying that to a machine learning based decision. Right, right. So maybe just to to clarify for listeners, you could sure. talk a little bit about the way that previous scholars have suggested specifically addressing some of these problems with inscrutability and non-intuitiveness and sort of what you think the inadequacies of those proposed sort of approaches would be. Sure. Well, so what I said before, there are a bunch of scholars working on questions of explanation. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of that is, well, we can start from the technical side. Well, actually, sorry, let's start from the legal side. So on the legal side, you have laws that already exist, like the Fair Credit Reporting Act and uh, the Equal Credit Opportunities Act, that have adverse action notices, Mm -hmm. which are designed to uh, explain the factors that went into a decision to someone. The idea of these is you go, you see what factors went into a decision, and there could be several normative aims, right? One could be to just avoid living in a Kafkaesque world where you literally don't know what's going on and thus mollify people, Mm -hmm. right? Or in a less cynical sense, 
could be just to say transparency. What is what is the basis of this decision? I just want to know. I may not want to act on it. I just want to know that there's some fairness there. Mm-hmm. That's about the limit of what that can do. The other que- the other reason to to approach an explanation regime like Picker and Ocoa that tell you the factors would be to ask what is like, where would I need to what would I need to change in order to get a better credit outcome. Mm. Now there are. I won't go completely into it, but there are a bunch of reasons the particular implementations in FICRA and ECOA are um, problematic, mm-hmm. uh, not least of which is you end up wanting to know different factors if you're more interested in the transparency rationale versus the sort of action item rationale. Okay. So they end up conflicting in that way, but it makes it really easy for consumers to essentially get this list that they don't know what to do with and can't really understand Scholars, some scholars have been trying to do a more sophisticated version of what we think is a similar idea. So there's been a lot of call for uh, counterfactual explanations, for example, where you, uh, I'm trying to think of how to explain this easily. Um, If you imagine that a result I, I'm sorry, there's no easy explanation that involves the phrase n-dimensional space. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, oh God. Uh, so basically, if you imagine a result that uh, is the basis of a lot of different factors, um, and each of the factors are, you know, a certain, contribute a certain amount, they want to essentially find the hypotenuse, right? Find the contribution of all the different factors. That's the easiest thing to change so that the consumer can get a good result. What I'm saying is this is a computationally more intensive but potentially more informative goal of Ficker and Nicola. Mm. There are two rationales for this. And again, those two rationales are transparency, as in, you know, we just want you to know what's going on. And... Um, Action, what I think at this point we call it action enabling, mm. where you, the consumer, are going to try to change your life, better your lot, and um, get a better result in credit. And ultimately, we think the, the sort of fundamental problem with all these approaches, and there are a few others that are similar, is that it puts the onus on the consumer. Mm. So all of these approaches are better about explaining the model, are not about justifying the model. Right. Where the assumption is just that the model gets the model maker gets to make whatever the decision they want, and um, you know the person just has to live with it, and probably it can try to game the system as much as they can, but they're pretty much screwed. And that's not a society we really want to live in. There is an exception, I would say. Ecoa actually doesn't say that completely, right? It's worried about discrimination, but explaining the reasons is not a great way of getting at discri- discrimination for all the same reasons that Title VII doctrine has developed past the idea of simply believing an employer when they're telling you you were fired for X, Y, and Z non-discriminatory reason. Right, right, right. So it, it seemed to me that what you were proposing was a sort of way of reframing the inquiry or reframing the question to look more at those normative justifications for using the algorithm in the first place. Right. I think that's exactly right. So the hope and what we had before algorithms to an extent is that 
if you wanted to challenge the basis for the decision, um, not just the decision itself, but the decision-making rules, you had someone you can go talk to, right? Mm-hmm. You had, you know, maybe there was an administrative process and you, you know, get it through comments or adjudication or some sort of due process mechanism where you can actually essentially ask the reasons for the rules. Mm-hmm. And with an algorithm, you can't do that. And so we're essentially trying to recreate that in a sense where what we want is that if you have a good reason for having created these rules, so imagine the example we have in our paper is these alternative credit, uh, these companies that are trying to do alternative credit scoring. A lot of them are actually trying to reach the traditionally unbanked. Right, people that don't have a great credit history, new immigrants, um, all sorts of folks are left out of the traditional FICO system. And some of these are honestly trying to figure out ways to to get credit scores to lend people money that don't have traditional credit, which is great. It's more inclusive. So what they might want to do is use social media data. And a lot of them, you, you can imagine, you know, it's not social media data, if you have a model it's not completely clear who your, like how your friend networks or how frequently you post um, ends up affecting your credit, right? This is going to be one of these intuitive rules. Mm-hmm. They can tell you these are the rules. They can disclose the model entirely, but we don't know why. But if you had documentation that says, okay, we tested these kinds of systems, and yeah, we really didn't want to use the social media data, but when we realized when we did use it, use it discrimination went down. Mm-hmm. That would be the kind of, the kind of um, at least, from my, from my perspective, a normative good. good. Um, but that would allow people to say, okay, this model using the social media data maybe should be justified because it is affirmatively reducing discrimination as opposed to just throwing it out there and saying, well, we don't actually know. Yeah, it's discriminatory, but we don't have any sense of why this particular data is in the model. Yeah, no, that, that I thought that was a great example because it's like if you look at it from a narrow frame, you might say, gee, using social media data in the algorithm seems to be associated with discriminatory, disparate uh, impact, right? But if you then take a step back and say, well, that's true, but it's a smaller discriminatory, <laughs> uh, disparate impact than if you didn't use the social media data, then it's like on net, it would be an improvement, even though from one perspective, it's associated with a bad thing. Right. And notice, and notice that this kind of solution is not solving the issue of um, unintuitive rules, right? You still don't know what the, what the rule basis is. And ideally, people would do more research to try to figure out um, in a more you know, social science way rather than a more big data way um, to figure out exactly what is the relationship going on there. So ideally, you eventually figure out the relationship. But what we're saying is if people are going to use these models out there, we want alternative ways of, of valid, validating these systems or invalidating these systems that such that if there are intuitive rules, we can say more interesting things about them as a regulatory matter. Yeah, yeah. And you made, you made two proposals uh, relating to disclosure, which I thought were really clever and interesting. One was, uh, and I love this phrase, a algorithmic impact statements. Um, and in addition, you suggested maybe like a litigation trigger for disclosure. And I was wondering if you could kind of briefly just sort of explain 
the, you know, what those would be and how they would, how they would work differently. Sure. So algorithmic impact statements are actually something I proposed in a prior article called uh, Disparate Impact in Big Data Policing. Um, and now they've actually, I'm, I'm also working on another article sort of filling out the concept a little bit. So it's still very much an idea in flux. Um, a think tank called AI Now has put out a paper on algorithmic impact assessments and the government of Canada has actually started implementing them. So this is an idea that's gaining traction. Cool. Uh, we still what it is. So the idea is, right, based on environmental impact statements, um, the goal would be to get people to think ahead of time about, you know, the potential impacts of choices they make. So going into a machine learning system, there are a whole bunch of choices that people have to make and can't avoid. So what data do you collect? What data don't you collect? What kind of cleaning do you do? How much effort do you put in? Um, cost is obviously a factor among all of these, right? Um, do you use a particular kind of explainable algorithm or not? Um, do you, um, what, what is the goal you seek to achieve? Some goals are going to end up being more discriminatory than others. There are all sorts of ways of, uh, parts of decisions that, that go into this process. And what the impact statement would do would say, okay, just write down, you know, document what you chose to do and what you didn't choose to do. I think that second part is actually really important. Mm. Um, and why? And what the predicted outcomes of, are of each of these steps, partially from a discrimination standpoint, but partially due process, all the things we care about in law. And the reason I'm proposing these is because I think where we are in sort of the algorithmic context is kind of where the environmental folks were 40-odd years ago when NEPO was passed. Like it's 50 years ago, almost 50 years ago now, um, when NEPO was passed. And that the people building the systems are also the people with the best knowledge and resources to be able to um, figure out what the impacts of the systems are, but they have no actual incentive to do so. Mm. And and we know that there's a particularly huge incentive to um, to offload the harms, right? To to externalize the harms and internalize the um, the profits. Mm -hmm. And so it's the exact same issue. And I think the impact statement model, I you know there there's a lot of question about whether it worked in the environmental context, and certainly the Supreme Court mucked with it pretty much instantaneously. So there's a lot of mixed data on that, and that's part of what we're actually trying to work through in, in, these, in this new scholarship. Um, but the idea is the same, right? Try to get the people building the systems to reflect on their, their possible harms, to just do their homework, mm. right? So that's the first thing. Oh, and there's a, the different, the thing is, there's also a period of notice and comment, um, right. of public comment where you're, the communities can express their values, can be involved in the system, and that's really important too because these are actually systems that might have very different value judgments based on the particular communities affected, and those communities should have that voice. Right. The well, link, I, the link, oh, sorry, go on. So I was going to say, in, in, in your paper, you acknowledge that something like an algorithmic impact statement might be more palatable for, say, a government agency than for, for a private actor, right? Exactly. Right. So this is why the, the private actors were thinking maybe something more like an internal impact assessment that gets made public on a trigger like litigation. Mm -hmm. And this is actually model 
the, the model that comes to mind um, when I think about this is actually also called an impact assessment, but it's a data protection impact assessment in Europe. Um, and so the GDPR requires data protection impact assessments, which actually, I mean, there's more scholarship being done on this. I know um, Margaret Kaminsky and uh, John, um, John Claudio Mangieri are thinking about these sorts of things. Um, it's a question of, of are, are they trying to do the same thing? So, sorry, so DPIAs, the way they work is companies prepare them for high risk of issues that occur with data. So that could be explanation, it could be discrimination, it could be traditional data protection issues about pri mostly privacy type issues. But they prepare them in, in collaboration internally and then in collaboration with the local country, the member states uh, data protection authority. So it never gets made public. And the only thing that has to be made public is, um, or actually nothing, but there's a recommendation that a summary be made public, right? A summary of the DPIA, if you do one. And ultimately, I think the, the GDPR allows these data protection authorities to demand them. So as in, they need to exist, right? You need to have done them, but at some point later, somebody might ask for them, and that's why you need to have done them. So I think the same thing is with this litigation idea. Um, you could end up with an impact assessment that is entirely internal, which I think would be much more palatable to a company with issues like trade secrets and, um, and, and those kinds of problems. But in the case of litigation where there's an actual problem, you've injured someone and so you're being sued in tort or you, know, you violated some sort of um, regulation, then it could be disclosed either under a protective order, depending on, you know, what we're actually talking about here, but it could be made available. And I think ultimately the two kinds of documentation serve similar, could serve similar purposes. Right. Just accounting for different kind of positional interests or increased confidentiality interests in the case of private, private companies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Andrew, it's been, it's been fascinating to learn more about this from you. And I was wondering if maybe you wanted to leave listeners with sort of a, in a nutshell version of why they should, you know, when they're thinking about sort of big data and the kind of big uh, black box issue, you know, why they should think about it in this kind of kind of more holistic, normative um, goals oriented way that you're talking about. Um, wow. <laughs> uh, I guess the answer is because it all boils down to values, right? Like law, the goals of law are to regulate society, not to regulate technology. And, you know, I think a lot of people thinking about these issues, think about the technology first and the technology last in a way, mm. even though in the back of their mind, a lot of the, the sort of motivations for their work end up being fairness, discrimination, due process, those kinds of questions. But ultimately, you know, the idea is if you fix the technology, those things will magically happen. You have to think more holistically and always anchor yourself on the ultimate goals of making sure that people who make decisions are justified in those decisions. I think that's most of what law does when it, when it comes to regulating decision-making. So, 
Yeah, no, that's so true. And I can't recommend to people more that they check out this incredibly rich paper. We've only scratched the surface in this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it was, it was, the pleasure was all mine. Hope to talk to you soon.